Welcome to the Victorian Aboriginal News Referendum 23 Tapes podcast. I'm your host, Charles Parkiner. Victorian Aboriginal News acknowledges and pays respect to traditional owners and custodians across Australia. We acknowledge the elders who have gone before, those who currently lead their communities and those who will follow in years and generations to come. In September this year, the Lowitcher Institute, which is the country's only national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health research institute, released a report titled Better Outcomes and Value for Money with a Seat at the Table. Now, in that report, the institute revealed some startling results of its research on the potential for the federal government to save massive amounts of money in the health sector should a voice to parliament become a reality. Joining me today to talk about this is the CEO of the Institute, Naranga Ghana woman, Professor Janine Muhammad. Professor, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, Professor, before we get to the report, given the 2008 commitment by the government to work Mm -hmm. with First Nations to address health and life expectancy Mm -hmm. and the 2020 national agreement formed in partnership between the Coalition of Peaks, federal, state, territory and local governments, what have been the main stumbling blocks in the ability to close the gaps? Mm, well, thank you. That's a really important question. And, and yes, the national agreement really did promise to be, you know, a real uh, game changer yeah. for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and governments. And at the heart of it, we had those expanded targets, but we also had the four priority reforms. And those talked about the way that government was going to work with us. And I think that's the most important thing about thinking about how government does work with us, reflecting on that and changing the way, like true transformation. Your listeners will know that the Productivity Commission, it recently released its findings and those findings were retrospective, like a three-year review Mm -hmm. of the agreement. And I think I have to underscore that what it said was that governments really didn't understand the urgency or the magnitude for us and for them (laughs) of what's required. But why why is that, given that this, it goes back to 2008? Yeah, yeah. So I think for them it's just been business as usual, you know, and really understanding that with transformation it means a sharing of power. It means, you know, shared decision making, co-design, which we all bung on about, but what does co-design really mean? When you're really doing it well, it means a sharing of power and decision making. So I think, you know, what we see in community-controlled organisations, which, of course, Lowitcher is one, is that still our investment's often short-term, it's unpredictable, it's not collaborative, and often the failure (laughs) of not closing the gap gets blamed on us because, you know, governments really still aren't listening and acting on the agreement that has been made and they don't know how to transform the way they work. I think for me, Charles, one real way of showing, you know, how it can be devolved to communities and how communities, when they're in control, really do have amazing outcomes is during COVID. You know, we saw in COVID that because of the high risk, because of the way that the the virus was spreading quickly, governments actually had to say to communities, 
you take control and yeah. you do what you need to do. Yeah. And that saw us six times less likely to get COVID in our communities. Of course, the social determinants caught up with us, poor housing and all of those things. And eventually, you know, we became a part of the rest of the country's statistics. But, you know, I think it showed a, a really good way of when, you know, it's left up to us how to spend the money that we received and that that money is, is spent in a way that communities need, want and desire and they develop plan and implement their own programs, we have amazing outcomes. <laughs> so you haven't really identified key stumbling blocks, but I think what you've said with how it could improve by mm -hmm. a proper co-design process, by actually working together, I think that really sums it up nicely. Now, one of the things that the report claims is that by improving the coordination of grants and service delivery by means of the mm -hmm. voice, there could be a significant reduction in the administration costs. And that's always been a huge stumbling block, I think, when it comes to getting money out to the community because it's got that mm. overlay, massive overlay of admin costs. Now, mm. these admin costs are estimated at 7 to 12% of funding allocated to public services and programs. So what could this potentially represent in real terms, in savings to the federal government? Mm. Well, if you think about the billions of dollars spent everywhere, yep. that kind of saving, that 7 to 12%, as you said, can be really significant. And there was an article in The Australian a few days ago by Paige Taylor. She pointed out that there's already quite a cost, perhaps averaging around 10% associated with like moving a single dollar of, of funding from one government department to another government department. God save us um, from bureaucracy. <laughs> I know. So when you think about that, um, the amount of billions, hundreds of millions, yeah. this is not small numbers. So what actually happens in that movement, they need to have contracts in place, reporting, audit and risk assessments and so on. And, of course, people need to get paid in those roles as well. Sure. But then if you know the reality of how many of our ATCHOs and other community-controlled organisations and how they work, you know that the level of administrative burden is intensified so disproportionately. Yeah. Lowitch Institute, years back now, you know, we're ahead of our time, we put out a report called the Overburden Report. So I encourage your listeners to actually have a look at that report, but it talked to exactly what, you know, we're having a conversation about today. So many, if not even most of our community-controlled organisations, they're funded through an absolute chaotic patchwork of grants and funding agreements. Yeah, you know, these can be before. three, four, four five yeah. <laughs> government yeah. departments that they're involved in and often more than one agreement per department. So, you know, multiple funding streams. So and how it, would the voice know, assist this, though, do you think? Well, I think, you know, that problem is actually elevated and the, that the whole process could be better coordinated and streamlined and then that would free up so many resources within our outshows and, and government departments too. So imagine how much more useful that funding and people's time could be, you know, addressing services that our people absolutely need. Yeah. So going back to your first question, you know, about closing the gap in the national agreement, we're talking to bureaucrats, you know, in these circles. We're not talking to the decision makers, which is parliament, yeah. yeah, and highlighting, you know, the needs, wants, desires of our communities. And so I often describe it as, you know, if there's a football stadium full, we're the 3% <laughs> in that football stadium mm. trying to drown out the other voices of what are our priorities and our needs. And we believe, you know, that if people listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, our needs, wants and desires, it's, it's actually better, you know, processes for everyone. 
Yeah, this actually yeah. leads on. Sorry to cut you there, but it seems no, to lead no, on fine. pretty well to another thing that report says, and this was the most staggering thing that I saw in the report, that it states that if investment in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander preventative and primary health care, and stress, preventative and primary health care initiatives could be targeted more effectively, mm. the annual savings on hospital expenditure alone could exceed $10 billion. Can you yeah. expand on how The Voice can bring this about? Because that's, that's a huge saving. Yeah. Well, it's a, the $10 billion question, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's so many ways that improved health care for our mob will save money. So in 2022, of course, we know that our peoples were 3.5 times more likely to require hospital yep. admission than non-Indigenous people. And we know that many health issues, including cancer, you know, kidney dis- diseases, our people don't present to health services until things are really acute. And that is often because they don't feel welcome or safe. It's because of past experiences in those mainstream health services. So, you know, cultural safety, which is, you know, my love and passion across a lifetime, is a big part of the answer. Mm. And also, you know, ensuring that Aboriginal community-controlled health services, we increase the number of those services so our people have access to primary health care services in the communities that they come from. And we know that, you know, those hospitals can be really unsafe and traumatising environments for our mob and their family. So we, you know, we often avoid them so that it's too late. Julie and Lisa talked about this the other night in the context of the voice. Yeah. And he kind of described what, you know, a lot of us say that he said diabetes is a lifestyle disease. It's manageable. And particularly in places like Sydney, you know, they are big metropolitan centres. Yet the leg amputation rate for Indigenous persons, particularly Torres Strait Islander mob, is almost four times higher than other Australians. Good Lord. Yeah, so, and those, the highest rates are in, in remote and very remote communities. And of course, the other end result of this is dialysis for our mob as well. And it's an incredibly preventable burden for the, you know, the individual, the community, the health system, but most importantly, our families, you know, who are often uh, looking after us in those chronic disease end of life states. So if, you know, Australian governments led initiatives that are guided by the voice that can improve, you know, things like diabetes management processes and practices to be more safe and more practical for my mob, then we would see fewer Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, you know, experiencing these acute injuries. And this burden of disease, again, I underscore burden because, you know, not often we get our first chronic disease and then we go and collect a few more. Yeah, we'll um, see that, yeah. <laughs> so... What we're saying is that primary or prevention dollar is less than that tertiary end. So if we could put more money into the primary and prevention area of healthcare, then we will spend less at the other end of the healthcare spectrum. You know, and before I was talking to you about birthing on country and how it's really dear to my heart. One really great model is in Queensland. It's called Birthing in Our Community Program. Now, it reduced the proportion of preterm births to almost parity with non-Indigenous babies. And so that's, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) And preterm birth and low birth weight, you know, that has an impact for the rest of your life. And it's a health impact for the rest of your life. But it saw, on average, like a cost savings of about $5,000 per mum and bub, like the pair. And that was more effective and less costly 
than, you know, your standard maternity care that you get in the mainstream hospital setting. And that's not even counting, you know, the social and emotional and cultural benefits of positive birthing experiences. And these are relatively um, straightforward suggestions and proposals, yeah. aren't they? But look, and another thing... if it was uh, rolled out across the country, you know, because the voice elevated yeah. that as a need. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things that, of course, a lot of advocates for the voice talk about, where it's not just a case of, look, we want something from the government, but actually what we can deliver to the government to impact on future policies that can be rolled out right across the country to any Australian going forward as one Australia. So another thing that did prove to be somewhat startling was in the report it stated that the overall government expenditure on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is 6% of total public expenditure. So there's no news on mm-hmm. that. I think that's been a fairly widely broadcast figure. But what was particularly startling is that the report said only 18% of that Mm -hmm. is specifically targeted towards those for whom it's intended. All of a sudden, that huge amount of 6% of public expenditure becomes a very, very small amount and nowhere near the 3% that one would imagine would be equitable. So why this disparity? Where's the money going? And to add to the complexity of the question, what can The Voice do to improve this? Well, I think why is kind of like a value question. And that we this hasn't been highlighted sooner, and there's been a lot said by the no campaigns and in the media about how much kids spend yep. on Indigenous health, and that's why our report is you know really important right now to speak to that. And it's a bit sad that we have to rebut that question. Actually, the AMA says that health spending per capita for our mob is only about sixty percent of what it should be to actually be equitable under that needs-based formula, you know, knowing mm. that we suffer a higher burden of disease, you know, in our communities. State and territories funding gets a bit closer to that, but it's the, it's the Australian government or the Commonwealth funding that really pulls the average down. Yeah, and we also know that overlaid on this is that we actually under-access Medicare funding as well and yep. we actually under access pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And we saw Nacho do some great work and that was the CTG with the, the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Yep. And that initiative actually saw Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people get medications at a lower cost and it actually opened up the, the piggy bank, if you like. Oh, it's groundbreaking of, uh, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's the sort of, you know, initiatives. I think it highlights the under-expenditure that the voice could highlight that and how we could actually work with governments to get funding, you know, to the right organisations and to the much-needed work that we need to do across the country. We know the solutions. I think the voice will actually elevate our voices into those realms where decisions can be made. Janine, I want to thank you so much indeed for coming onto the podcast and sharing information about this report. We will link to the report and also the other report to which Janine mentioned on the website. So, Janine, once again, thank you. Thanks, Charles. For a full transcript of this interview, visit the Victorian Aboriginal News website at vicaboriginalnews.com.au. Until our next episode... Stay safe and stay informed.